So we spent the last five weeks asking an important question. That question is, why church? Why, when there are so many other relationships and so many ways to spend our time, do we bother with this and with each other? Over the last few weeks, we've answered this question in part by discovering that the church is the place where God's kingdom is present here on earth. It's the one place where we can learn to become fully human. It's a unique family and a diverse community sent as God's ambassadors into the world. The picture of the church we've considered up to this point is compelling, but honestly, it's also daunting. And it raises another question, how? We're human after all. How does God expect us to be the church that we read about in Scripture? Well, today's the midpoint of this sermon series. We spent the last five weeks focused on the identity of the church, and over the next five weeks, we're going to focus on the mission of the church. But today, today we're going to call a timeout in order to ask how this all happens. How do we become the people God wants us to be? Well, in order to answer that question, we're going to join Jesus and his disciples on the night before Jesus was crucified. It was then that he promised to send the Holy Spirit, who is the how of the church and of every life in Christ. So turn with me to John 14. I think it's on page 901. Jesus and the disciples are at dinner. In less than 24 hours, he will be publicly humiliated and then tortured by a slow and agonizing death. He knows that his friends, the disciples, are about to go through their own kind of torture as well. He has been their guide, their friend, their rock, and now he's about to leave. He'll rise from the dead, of course, and their lives will be changed forever, but he won't rejoin them for long. Having risen, he will ascend to the heavens to take up his throne, and they'll be on their own. Jesus wants them to know what to expect, and he wants them to know that even though he will be physically absent, he will nonetheless be with them in a far more profound way than they could have ever imagined. So after dinner, he takes the conversation in a new direction. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you an, another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now that sounds a little bit like a quid pro quo, doesn't it? Love me and I'll love you. But we've got to remember the context. The next day, Jesus is going to die for them in the most extravagant act of love in the history of the world. His love for them is not in doubt. It's their love for him that's about to be tested. Jesus seems to be saying, look, if you love me, and I know you do, you're going to have to stick with me in spite of everything that's about to happen. This will be hard, but there will be help because I'm going to give you a gift unlike any other, a helper to be with you forever. Well, this helper is the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus calls the Spirit of Truth in verse 17 and whom he calls the Holy Spirit in verse 26. 
Now, the disciples would have been familiar with the idea of a spirit like this from the Old Testament, but the term helper, it added an entirely new dimension. The Greek word for helper is paraclete. It can also be translated as comforter, advocate, defender, or counselor. Occasionally, it means something like a defense attorney. And what these various, various definitions have in common is the idea that a paraclete comes alongside a person to give strength, counsel, and support. I love how former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, describes this term. He writes this, no translation will do it justice. It represents one who's called in to stand by. It may be as a witness or as an advisor or as an advocate in the legal sense. The suggestion is of one who makes us brave and strong by being brave and strong beside us. To strengthen is the best of all ways to console, for it brings a bracing consolation and not a relaxing sympathy. The Holy Spirit isn't sent to help with menial tasks or to provide a bit of comfort or to act like a therapist. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit of God will come to dwell within his people in order to strengthen them, to give them courage, to make them brave, and to offer them that bracing consolation necessary to pursue the mission of God. Alicia and I have been re-watching Band of Brothers recently. As you probably know, this 10-part television series based on the book by Stephen Ambrose tells the true story of E Company of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment as they drop into Normandy on D-Day and then fight their way across Europe. One of the most compelling characters in this incredible story is Lieutenant Richard Winters. Winters takes command of Easy Company not long before D-Day, and then he leads them in near constant combat in the months that follow. In the interviews that accompany this series, the men who served alongside him and survived, they talk of his leadership with a real sense of awe. In the show itself, Winters, he leads in such a way that he is some, somehow always out in front, while at the same time always standing shoulder to shoulder with his men. Whether it's running into the open under fire to rescue a wounded man or sharing a comforting word with a shell-shocked private or charging through a hedgerow not knowing what's on the other side. Winters leads with courage and a deep compassion for the soldiers who are under him. They follow him with loyalty and admiration as a result. But more striking than this, perhaps the most striking thing of all, is that his soldiers become more and more like him as they fight alongside him, brave, selfless, courageous. As I thought about the term paraclete that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit, I've had the image of Lieutenant Winters in mind. The Spirit is the power, strength, and courage of the risen Jesus himself. He leads us into battle. He fights alongside us. 
And the longer we're together, the more we learn to look and to act like him. I find this to be a helpful analogy, but like so many analogies, it doesn't quite capture the complete picture. And that's because the Holy Spirit doesn't just come alongside us, the Holy Spirit actually inhabits us. So here are some of the ways Jesus talks about the Spirit in John 14. In verse 17, he says, he dwells with you and will be in you. In verse 20, he says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. In verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Some people think of the Holy Spirit as a kind of life force that inhabits everything around us. In order to live by this Spirit, you simply need to find it and get in tune with it. So people speak of experience the presence of this Spirit on a beautiful day at the beach or on top of a mountain. Of course, God is everywhere and nothing on earth has life apart from the life and will of God. But the Holy Spirit is not some generic life force accessed by anyone with a spiritual disposition. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus himself sent by Father and Son together to those who put their trust in him. Others think of the Holy Spirit as like like an occasional jolt of miraculous power, like a, a shot of spiritual adrenaline. Now, everyone loves a good superhero, and we all secretly want to have a superpower, right? So we're tempted to think of the Holy Spirit in this context, like a surge of power or miraculous intervention sent from God to help us out in a particular situation. Yes, God does intervene in powerful and sometimes miraculous ways through the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit is not just a jolt of power. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that the Spirit is a person. Well, finally, there are some who think of the Holy Spirit as if the Spirit were a divine GPS. And for them, the Spirit's main job is to guide our actions and our decision-making through internal promptings, nudges, or even the occasional audible voice. This GPS Spirit doesn't require us to read a map just to follow directions. Now, God does guide us by the Spirit. As Jesus makes clear, part of the Spirit's role is to teach, to bring to mind all that Jesus said, and then to lead his people deeper into the truth. But the way the Spirit does this isn't primarily through just-in-time nudging and directing. The Spirit does this by inhabiting, reshaping, and transforming us. When we turn to Jesus in faith, when we, when we succumb to his love for us, he comes to live within us by the Holy Spirit. When our family moved to Raleigh, we bought our very first home. That was 11 years ago, and it still feels like we're moving in. We're still working on getting the right furniture, we're still decorating and redecorating, and we're constantly repairing. Now, we may be particularly slow at this, but I don't know if we're all that unusual. 
Part of what we've experienced is how a home changes as your kids grow up. We moved in with four kids, seven and under. Our oldest is now in college and our youngest is now in middle school. As your family grows and changes, your home grows and changes. It needs constant upkeep and attention. The same thing is true of our lives. Jesus uses the metaphor of homemaking in John 14 to describe the way in which the Spirit inhabits us. The Spirit moves in and takes up residence when we turn to Jesus in faith, but that's just the beginning. The work of homemaking continues throughout our life of faith. The Spirit isn't just sleeping in the guest bedroom. The Spirit becomes the master of the house when he enters the door. Now, the more fully a person occupies a home, the more the home begins to look like them, right? It reflects their character, their passions, their priorities. So what does a life look like that's been inhabited by the Spirit of God? There are three qualities that stand out to me in our reading from John and our reading from Ephesians that I want to consider briefly before we close. And the first is love, love. A life inhabited by the Holy Spirit will be filled with love. So John 14, 21, he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The love that Jesus has for us is not limited to a one-time act in the distant past. The cross remains the supreme example of his love, but is by no means the sum total of that love, for he continues to pour out his love on us today. He loves you now, even if you're tired, discouraged, or dangling over the precipice of depression. He loves you now, even if you're bored and restless. He loves you when you're ugly, when you're angry. It's not just Jesus who loves you, it's God the Father as well. Jesus didn't act on his own when he came to save us. He was the living, breathing embodiment of the love of God the Father. But the Holy Spirit does more than fill us with God's love. The Spirit sustains our love for God and gives us love for one another. In one of his later letters, John wrote the following, in this is love, Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The Holy Spirit, the personal presence of God, pours into us the love of God and then fills us with love for God and for our neighbors. The second quality of a life inhabited by the Holy Spirit is obedience. As John says, as Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In our day and age, in our present cultural moment, to love someone means to approve uncritically of them and their actions and to accept them just as they are and do all in your power to advocate for their right to be whoever they want to be. That's how we define love in America. 
Astonishingly, many churches have begun to adopt this as the definition of God's love for us. But do any of you want to live forever as the person you are right now? Do you want to be defined by your whims and desires, by your frustrations? Do you want simply to be approved? Or do you want to be transformed into the person God created you to be? I want to be transformed. I want to experience life as it's meant to be lived here and now in this fallen world and then ultimately in the new creation when sin and death and despair have been destroyed. And the means by which God allows us to experience that life here and now is as we obey his commands and we follow his will. He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us and to enable us to do just this. Now there are people who've put their trust in Jesus and then locked the Holy Spirit in the laundry room. Their house is dirty and it's cluttered and they can't do any wash for fear that the Spirit will get loose. But that's precisely what we need. Obedience to the one who loves us and gave himself for us is the only sure path to the good life. And it's the Spirit who enables this. The third quality of life, of a life inhabited by the Holy Spirit, is power. Now, this may be the least understood aspect of the Spirit's ministry. In our reading from Ephesians 3, and go ahead and flip over there to Ephesians 3, this is what Paul writes. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. This prayer takes me back to that definition of the word paraclete given by Archbishop Temple, that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us brave and strong by being brave and strong beside us. And I think again of Lieutenant Winters standing along a hedgerow in Normandy with tracer fire streaming past him, grabbing the shoulder of one of his men and yelling, let's go, as he pulls him to his feet. When we're weak, the Spirit is strong. When we lack conviction, the Spirit gives us confidence. When we're worn out and discouraged, the Spirit holds us up and carries us forward. Now, I have to admit that I don't fully understand how the Spirit does this. How the Spirit reshapes our lives to be filled with love and obedience and power. But I know that he does because I've experienced it myself and I've seen it in the lives of so many of you. So what have I said this morning? I said that the Holy Spirit is the how of the church. The Spirit is the personal presence of God the Father and Jesus his Son who takes up residence within us when we turn to Jesus in faith. The Spirit's not some generic life force, occasional jolt of power, or divine GPS. The Spirit is a person who pours into us the love of God, shapes our lives in obedience to His will, 
and then fills us with God's power to walk with him each day. We have the Holy Spirit. But more importantly, the Holy Spirit has us. And the how of the church is the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're looking for an application from this sermon, the very best thing you can do is to join Paul in his prayer from Ephesians 3. Write it on a card, stick it in your pocket or your purse, put it in the notes of your phone, memorize it, pray it for yourself, for your loved ones, for this church community. I want to pray it for us now as we close. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, according to the riches of your glory, would you strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.